Hi, my name is Bailey and I go to the Nashville campus. I've been coming to Crosspoint since 2018. When I first started coming to Crosspoint, it was such a big church that I knew it would be easy for me to show up and sit by myself and go home and not have community or accountability. And so I wanted to get into a group right away so that I would be able to come to church and sit with people that I knew and have friends and um, hopefully find some deeper community and conversation. I can't imagine my life without them. I've been in their weddings and have gotten to sing at their weddings. We've celebrated babies. I've been part of some of their most difficult days too. And I am so grateful to get to be with them in those situations. It's completely changed my life. There's been times where people have come in and said, I'm really frustrated with God, or I don't understand what God is doing, and um, I'm hurting and it's not getting better, or my family member has cancer and I don't understand why. And they've made a lot of space for me to be able to show up with questions or show up um, frustrated or hurt. In the season of life where I was struggling so much and I didn't really want to pray and I didn't really want to talk to God. I was still going to small group and still coming to church and still part of community. I see the ways that God loved me through them, even when I didn't really want to talk to Him, <laughs> and loved me so well through them. I know that I can bring my most authentic self to the table, and it's always accepted and always loved. Thank you, Bailey, for sharing your story of how God used community, how he used a small group and those relationships to bring about transformation in your life. And the thing that, um, that just stayed with me from Bailey's story was where she just shared in a real vulnerable way, hey, there was a time when I didn't necessarily want to pray or I didn't want to talk to God, but there were some people around me that helped me um, hold on to faith and, uh, and remind me that God is holding on um, to me. And so I was just, I was thinking about that and just thinking, man, there may be some of you who you've yet to take that step toward finding a group. We're talking in the series about what it means to run your race. What I want you to know today is that none of us were meant to run alone. You have a race that God's called you to run, but none of us were meant to run alone. We've been looking at this in the series here. And now we've been looking at the scripture, Hebrews chapter 12. If you got a Bible, you can turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put it on the screen. Um, we're going to pick up in verse 1. And what I want you to listen to in this key passage, I want you to listen to the plurality. I want you to listen for the plural. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We can grow weary. We can lose heart. So the author of Hebrews is writing to this group, and, and he's writing to a group. The reason for the plurality is because he's writing to a group of Christians, likely a group of house churches in Jerusalem, who remember because of their association with Jesus have faced persecution. And so there is, there is a, there's suffering and there's hardship and even imprisonment, and some people have lost their lives because they are followers of Jesus. 
And he, he's writing to encourage them to keep running, to keep running the race, to fix their eyes on Jesus, to keep moving forward. And, and he's reminding them that you weren't meant to run alone. In fact, he starts out these verses with this, therefore we are surrounded, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The idea is that there are witnesses who are cheering for us. Now, if we want to know who are the witnesses, we go back to the therefore. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, you should ask yourself the question, what is it there for? What's it there for? And the reason that it's there is because he's got this, this thought that proceeded in chapter 11. In chapter 11, he gives us this great hall of faith. He gives us the heroes of the faith. Those who have gone before us, those who have persevered, those who have run their race like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Deborah and David and Samuel, these heroes of the faith who have gone before us. He says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We have a cloud of witnesses in heaven who are cheering for us. I want you to just let that thought, let it soak in that heaven is cheering for you. That as you run your race, you don't run alone. Heaven is cheering for you. The saints who have gone before us are cheering for you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the original small group, the OG small group is cheering for you. Heaven is cheering for you, saying, don't give up. Keep going. Don't quit. Keep running the race. So heaven is cheering for you. And what I'm going to say is a, it, it might sound blasphemous. I got your attention. It may sound blasphemous, but here's, what, here's a thought I want you to just kick around. I want you to take in. Heaven is cheering for you, but heaven is not enough. All of heaven is cheering for you, but heaven is not enough. So what do you mean? We need the spirit inside of us, but we also need people beside us. We all need the spirit of God inside of us. And the moment you gave your life to Jesus, the moment you trusted Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, savior of your life, you've trusted him for forgiveness of sin, you've received the spirit of God in you. That is, that is an amazing reality that the spirit of God doesn't live in a temple way off somewhere. The spirit of God lives in us. We are his temple. So we need the spirit inside of us, but we also need people beside us. So when God created the world, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. Everything God's saying is good, it's good, it's really good. And then he says, it's not good that we should be alone. Like we need this was before sin. This was before the fall. See, none of us were created to live independent from God or from others. We were created for relationship. We were created to, to be known and to be loved. That's why there's this longing in all of our hearts to be connected in relationship. It's how God made us. It's why the first thing Jesus did before his ministry began was we, he went and got 12 friends. He, he formed a small group. Not because he's insecure, but because he's human, fully God and fully man. And because Jesus is fully God and fully man, because he's fully human and he has needs, for relationship, he goes and gets 12 friends. It's why when he sent out the disciples, the 72, he sent them out, he sent them out in pairs of two. He's like, you're not gonna run alone. We're all called to run our race, but none of us are called to run alone. It's powerful to have somebody with you. I, uh, I learned this in an unforgettable way when I was 39. 
because I set a goal before I turned 40 to run a marathon, which was a stupid goal. But I set this <laughs> goal to, to run a marathon. It was 262 uh, miles, and that was, the, that was the goal. And so I signed up for a race that was out of state so that when I ran it, I wouldn't see anybody I know. And so I signed it up, and, and my wife, Ree, she went with me, and uh, she went as my support and, uh, and to encourage me along the way. And so we, we went, and I just had one goal. I had one goal running this marathon, and my goal was don't walk. Like I had trained um, running and I'm like, I just don't want to walk. Just don't want, just keep going. Just left foot, right foot, just keep going. Don't walk. That was my one goal. The thing I learned about a marathon is that, um, okay, shorter races, you run in packs. You run in groups. The thing about a marathon is with these long stretches, the longer the race, the greater the chance that there will be time where you run alone. And when, here's what I learned about me that when I am in isolation in a race, when I'm alone, that's when I tend to think stupid thoughts. When I, <laughs> when I am in isolation, when I'm running alone, I would think thoughts like, man, you just need to quit. You just need to give up. You can walk, nobody cares. Nobody will see, nobody will know. Just walk. I think thoughts like, you could call an Uber. That's why God gave us Apple watches. So we could, you could call an Uber on your wife. You could fake an injury. You could have a little ambulance come and pick you up. You don't have to finish the race. You, you, you can get, see that bus over there? Public transportation. You can get on the bus. You can get on the bus. You can throw yourself in front of the bus. If you throw yourself in front of the bus, you don't have to, you don't have to finish the race. When I was isolated, that's when... I thought stupid thoughts. I was reading a book about seven years ago, came across a book. It's called 10 Signs of a Leadership Crash. It's from Stephen Mansfield. And part of his job was to clean up in organizations after a moral failure of a senior leader, a high-level leader. And he gives these 10 signs of what he's seen in these organizations, 10 signs that preceded the crash. And here's what he, here's what he writes. Um, he, write, he found that every time in every situation, the leader isolated themselves. And every time in every situation preceding the crash, the leader isolated themselves, that they withdrew from healthy relationships. Now, here's the difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is when we withdraw from the voices of this world and we withdraw from relationships for a period of our day so that we can hear from God and so that a healthy version of ourselves can show up in relationships. That's solitude. Isolation is when we withdraw from healthy relationships. And isolation is usually driven by fear or shame or insecurity. And Satan loves isolation. Because when we are isolated, we are most vulnerable. We're most vulnerable. When was Jesus tempted? When he was alone in the wilderness. When was Elijah? When did Elijah um, suffer from crippling depression? When he was isolated, when he was alone in the wilderness. And it was in that time that, I, that Elijah said, I'm the only prophet in all of Israel, which was not true. He was not the only prophet. In but see, when we think isolated thoughts, that's when we're vulnerable. That's when we're most vulnerable. We're most vulnerable, the evil one, to intimidate us, to confuse us, to deceive us, to get us to buy in and to believe lies. See, 
Satan knows the more isolated we are, the more tempted we will be to quit in the race that we run. Uh, Ree had run a marathon before, and so she knew when I would need encouragement. And so she mapped out strategic places in the race to encourage me as I was running. Strategic places where she would cheer me on, and when I would hear her voice, I just, I get a shot of adrenaline, that's my girl. And so I would just, I would run a little faster. And, and she filmed me, me running. You wanna see a, a clip of, uh, of what it looked like to run a marathon? Uh, check this out. Good job, Kev, how you feeling? How you feel? Good. Okay, keep it up, keep it up, I'll see you soon. You know why I feel good? Because I'm three miles in. I am, uh, <laughs> I'm feeling good. But I already needed some, needed some encouragement along the way. And here's what I learned from that experience is that we give more of ourselves in the presence of others. We give more of ourselves in the presence of others. You know this to be true experientially. If you've ever had a workout partner, if you've ever had an accountability partner, if you've ever been in a study group, if you've ever been in a small group, if you've ever had a running group, if you've ever been in a band, you know, we give more of ourselves in the presence of others. It is a spiritual and relational principle. It's powerful. And when we have other people with us, we tend to run faster and we tend to go further. It's just true. It's what encouragement does. And that's why we find in Hebrews chapter 10, now remember these, these people, they are going through hardship. They're going through suffering in verse 23. It says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You say, we're more likely to give up if we don't have other people encouraging us. We are setting ourselves up for greater vulnerability for giving up if we quit gathering together. If we keep meeting together, if we keep gathering together, we're setting ourselves up for endurance, for perseverance. We need other people who are encouraging us. It's why our brothers and sisters who are in recovery, it's why there's the, the saying, keep coming back. Just keep coming back. Just keep showing up. We need other people around us. Encouragement is powerful. That's why he says, so let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Literally means provoke one another to keep going. Like provoke, just keep going. I could tell you what that looks like or I could show you what that looks like. Because at mile 19, Re had positioned herself. She positioned herself um, to cheer me on. And y'all want to see what mile 19 looked like? <laughs> well, of course you do. Uh, check this out. Come on, Kev. It's going to be a minute. Um. <laughs> you got it. You need me? You need me? Woo. <laughs> That's how pastors cuss. That's what that is. That was just... That was, <laughs> Just insert whatever right there. That was, uh. Did you hear what Reese said? He said, do you need me? Do you need me? You know why? 
because Ray had, she had worn her workout clothes. Because see, she'd run a marathon before. And she knew at mile 19, I'd be getting close to hitting something that they call the wall. And if you've never hit the wall before, it feels like hitting a wall. <laughs> Just exhausted. Nothing left in the tank. You don't think you can keep going. And Ree knew that we give more of ourselves in the presence of others. And she knew the power of encouragement. And she wore her workout gear. And she said, do you need me? And I didn't have the courage to ask for help, but Ree knew what I didn't have the courage to ask for. And she started to run with me. And she started to run with me, and she encouraged me and cheered me on. Now, she didn't have a bib. It wasn't legal. <laughs> Don't call the race officials and, like, try to care in this thing. I mean, she, she, she jumped in and she, and she ran with me and I, I hit the wall and she kept me going. She filmed um, one mile left. She pulled out her phone and, uh, and got some encouragement. I want you to see this. Check this out. One to go, Kev. Awesome. So good. Accomplishment. Just amazing. Inspiring. And you're strong. Going one mile, you got it less than a mile, and I kept going and I finished the race. And I was thinking about I don't think I would have finished that race if it wasn't for Ray. I certainly know that I would have walked, but she kept cheering me on and she ran with me. She was a faithful presence. You know, psychologists tell us that when we are encouraged, when we experience encouragement, that it literally changes our brain chemistry, that it is fuel for performance. Neuroscience is catching on with what the Bible has been saying all along. In Hebrews chapter three, verse 13, it says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Why does it say as long as it's called today? Because we all need it today. All of us need to be encouraged today. You know, in all my years of being a pastor, I've never had somebody come to me and say, Kevin, can you, can you just hold off on the encouragement? I've had enough. If somebody is breathing, they need encouragement. And so we, encouragement is a gift that we give when to keep going. Don't give up. We all need encouragement. He said, and, and what it does is, is it, it makes our appetite for sin less. The more filled up we are, to be discouraged means to literally lose heart. But when we encourage somebody, we are giving them heart. People who are weary, who need heart. Encouragement is the gift that we give, and we need it every day. You were not meant to run alone. Well, why do we isolate? And why do we withdraw from relationships? Why do we choose to run alone? There may be a lot of reasons. Pride, insecurity, fear, hurt, shame. There may be a lot of reasons. I want to give you one, one reason that I think all of us probably struggle with, and it's the one sin I've never had anybody confess. In all my years as a pastor, it's the one sin I've never heard anybody confess. So we're gonna look at that together. To get there, I need to tell you a story. I asked Ree, I said, Ree, can, um, can you send me all the pictures that you have of the marathon? So she sent me some pictures and I was kind of scrolling through and one, I, I saw this first one, I was like, this is, um, that's me and my friend Aaron Rodgers. Um, that's not Aaron Rodgers, but. Um, <laughs> That's a race official. That's actually a pace setter. And so, you know, I was running with him and he, he didn't wait for me. He just kept running, made me run alone. And, and so that, um, I don't even remember his name, but see you guy. Uh, let's do the next picture. 
Um, this is my favorite picture. This was after the race, and this is us, us walking together. And I've looked at this picture, and I just had so much joy. We've been married for 23 years together, and I'm like, man, there's so much life together. But this is one of those moments. I'm just like, so much joy. There's like an authentic smile on my face. I'm like, man, I finished this race, and I could not have done it without, without Re. And, uh, and then I, I flipped over um, to the next picture, and then I saw this. And um, this was race results. And I didn't know I was going to see this, but, um, but I saw this. And, you know, as I looked at this, um, all the joy that I had just dissolved. <laughs> because they say comparison is the thief of joy, and it is. Because instantly I started comparing myself, and I compared myself. I didn't look at who was below me. I looked at who was above me. And Ellen Birch, and I don't know who Ellen Birch is. I don't know where she's at right now, but I know she's 51. She was 51 at that time, and she beat me. And, and that's all I was thinking about. I was like, well, Ellen? I mean, Ellen's probably running right now. She's probably, she is a fit specimen. She is, Ellen, she is an athlete. That's what she is. Um, beat me by 20 seconds. And I, all I could think about at that moment was I wasn't thinking about all the good things in my life. I was thinking about Ellen. And, how, and, then, and then I looked down to Rolf Skyberg and I was like, Rolf, you were 25 and I was 39 and I beat you, bro. I beat you. <laughs> And they say comparison is the thief of joy because it is. I've heard it said there is no win in comparison. There's no win in comparison. Now, here's the thing. That is a marathon. Comparison is part of a competition is part of a race. The problem is when we bring that mindset into all of our other relationships. Into school, into work, into family, online. When we, when we live our lives through the lens of comparison, there's no win in comparison, and here's why. Because when we compare ourselves with somebody who has more, drives more, achieves more, wears more, accomplishes more, when we compare our lives with people who have more, it causes us to feel insecure, ungrateful, insignificant. And when we compare ourselves with people who have less, drive less, wear less, achieve less, it causes us to have pride and a sense of, a false sense of superiority. That's why they say there's no win in comparison. And if you've ever been on social media, you know this to be true. Scrolling through, see somebody's posted up some pictures of their trip to Hawaii. Photo dump to Hawaii, scrolling through, sun is shining, weather's amazing. You're in middle Tennessee where it's supposed to be seven degrees this week and it gets dark at 4 p.m. And your first thought might not be, that is great for you, you got vacation. First thought might be, well, somebody's gotta work. Somebody's gotta stay here at work, right? Are you scrolling through and you see some friends got together for sushi and didn't let you know? And you love sushi. What you don't like is frozen pizza that you're eating as you scroll through alone. In comparison, what I mean, comparison is what, I, okay, there's this thing called the explore page. And this explore page on Instagram is where you can go if you want to be reminded by strangers of all the things that you don't have. I went to the Explore page this week and I found an influencer who had abs and a black Maserati and a private jet. 
And in a moment, I was reminded of three things that I'm never gonna have. Like in that moment, I'm like, not for you. And, and I'm just like, I, I remind, and there is no win in comparison. And what comparison does is it kills contentment because it dwells on what other people have and obsesses about what I don't have. And it doesn't just happen on social media. It happens anywhere there are other people. See, comparison leads to the one sin that I've never heard anybody confess. You know what that one sin is? Envy. Envy is the one sin that I've never had anybody come to me and say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm really struggling with envy. It's never happened. Because I think it's the sin that we all probably struggle with, at least just a little bit, but that nobody wants to confess. And it's one of the most common struggles. It's the oldest sin. God told Adam and Eve, remember he reminded, he told Adam and Eve, he's like, there's one tree that you can't eat from. All the other rest, because it was never about rules, it was about relationship. But there was one tree. And what did Adam and Eve do? Instead of focusing on all the things that they could have, they saw the one thing that they could not have. And then you go over one more chapter and Cain kills Abel because he was envious of the sacrifice they were made. It was envy. Envy tears relationships apart, kills contentment, and it kills community. It tears relationships, it tears families apart because it leads to isolation. See, think about the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is do not covet, do not envy your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants. Don't, don't envy your neighbor. Why would God put that? I mean, the 10 standard rules of like baseline society, why would God include covenant in there? It's because God knows what it does to our hearts. God loves us. And he knows that there, is, there are more ways to be slaves than to be enslaved in Egypt. We can be slaves to our possessions, to what we have and to what we don't have. And God said, don't, because he loves us. He knows that envy will will lead us to isolation because it's hard to have community. It's hard to run with others when you're racing against everyone. Envy tears apart relationships. It tears apart community. Proverbs says that envy will make the bones rot, literally physical pain. The New Testament says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. What envy does is we end up rejoicing when others mourn and mourning when others rejoice. And so God's God's saying to us, there's a better way, the way of contentment, to live with contentment because envy leads us to isolate and it focuses on the self. And we can envy a lot of different things. We can envy jobs, we can envy houses, we can envy cars, we can envy options, we can envy, envy wealth, we can envy opportunities, we can envy somebody's body, we can envy somebody's beauty, we can envy somebody's family, we can envy somebody's popularity, we can envy somebody's intelligence, we can envy somebody's gifts, we can envy somebody's college. We can even envy somebody else's miracle, a miracle that they got that we didn't get. We can, we can envy just about anything. And I think what God wants to do is to increase our awareness of it to say, hey, this isn't something that we want to cultivate or allow in our lives. This isn't a hobby. It's a sickness. It's a sickness to to put on the cross. I was reading through the scriptures and it says in Matthew that the religious leaders crucified Jesus out of envy. That envy led to the crucifixion of Christ. And I was thinking, you know what? In Jesus' 
he died for our envy. That our sin was placed on him on the cross so that we can be forgiven. But it's not just for our forgiveness. From an empty tomb, we have power so that we don't have to live consumed by comparison and envy. That he wants to set us free. I was reading, there was a philosopher named Luke Ferry who writes this. He said, we live virtually all of our lives somewhere between memories and aspirations, nostalgia and expectation. We imagine we would be much happier with new shoes, a faster computer, a bigger house, more exotic holidays, different friends. But by regretting the past or guessing the future, we end up missing the only life worth living, the one which proceeds from the here and now and deserves to be savored. God wants us to savor the life that he's given to us. It's the kingdom of God, the king's domain, the power and presence of God, his goodness that we, that we have, that we get to experience. It's a here and now reality. Contentment is here and now. Envy leads us to then and there. If I could just be there, then I would be happy. And God said, I want to teach you how to savor your life right now, how to live with contentment. I want you to run your race. And here's what envy does. Envy tries to get us to run somebody else's race. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to heaven and find out I got second place in somebody else's race. I want to get to heaven and find that I ran the race that God had for me. I want you to arrive at the finish line and know you ran the race that God had for you. How do we live with that kind of contentment, with that kind of focus? Well, let me give you three ways to train this week. We're not just trying with this. Remember, we're training. Let me give you three ways to train. The first is cultivate gratitude. We're either training our minds to compare or we're training our minds to appreciate. One of the two. Social media trains us to compare. We need to practice in our lives to train to appreciate. I haven't found anything more beneficial for me personally than a gratitude list. And so every day I do something called first and 10 because I love football. And so first thing in the morning, I want to make a list of 10 things that I'm grateful for from the day before. And cheeseburgers can be on that list. It's my list. It's not your list. Don't judge me. That's why I run. Cheeseburgers on that list. A great slice of pizza. A great conversation with a friend. An amazing cup of coffee. Somebody came to Christ the day before. The church, like I'm going to make the, and I'll list out 10 things that I'm grateful for. And I don't just say I'm thankful for, I say, thank you, Father. I say, thank you, Father. See, I'm not just saying I'm grateful to the universe. I know I've got a father in heaven who cares for me. You have a father who cares for you. And so saying thank you is how we protect from entitlement. So I don't want to be an entitled child of God. And gratitude battles against entitlement. So thank you, Father. And so I'll make a list of, of, of 10 things. And, and I'm, I'm working on million-dollar gifts, on million-dollar gifts. Here's what I mean by million-dollar gifts. These are the things I've just been thinking through. What are the things in my life that if I had a million dollars, I would pay a million dollars to get? Like my sight. If I could no longer see and I had a million dollars, I'd pay a million dollars to be able to see. Say, thank you, God. Think through your lives. What are the things that you would pay a million dollars if you had a million dollars to get and to live with gratitude for the gifts that we already have? Because we're either training our minds to compare or we're training our minds to appreciate. And gratitude battles entitlement and comparison. 
And here's the thing about comparison and envy. Comparison and envy is having 20-20 vision for the goodness of God in somebody else's life. Gratitude is having 20-20 vision for God's goodness and the good gifts in our lives. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude. It's a powerful, powerful way to live and to build contentment and to battle envy. Second thing that I would give you if you're looking for a practice this week, another way to train in this, is to cheer others on, to cheer others on, to encourage other people. When we cheer others on, we are like heaven. We bring the kingdom of God up. If all of, if uh, there's a great cloud of witnesses in heaven cheering people on, when we cheer others on, we are joining, we are joining heaven. Encouragement is the spirit of heaven. When we give encouragement to other people, it's powerful. It says, as long as it's called today. Why? Because when we have an encouraging thought to give to somebody, the temptation is to think, well, I'll just wait till tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. As long as it is called today. And why does it say that? Because other people need that word of encouragement today. There are people in our lives who are up against the wall, who need somebody like Reed to come alongside them and say, keep going. You can do this. It is powerful when we give encouragement, the right word at the right time and the right way is powerful. It is breakthrough in other people's lives. We need people around us who can encourage us. If you don't have a group of people around you who can encourage me, if you're not encourage you, if you're not around a group of people where you can encourage them, this is why this is such an important season for us in the church where we can get in groups together because you were not made to run alone. Celebrate others. Celebrate others. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. You know when this is hard? You know when this is difficult? When somebody else gets the thing that you want? The reason they call it a practice, encouraging other people or cheering other people on, the reason it's a practice, we practice things that we can't do now easily so that eventually we can do them with ease. So sometimes, man, it is hard to celebrate other people when they get the thing that we want. That's why it's called a practice, because <laughs> we're practicing. We're practicing. And when somebody gets the job, or somebody gets the promotion, or somebody gets the bestseller, or somebody gets the number one song, or somebody gets engaged, or somebody gets married, or somebody gets pregnant, or somebody, their kid makes the team, or somebody, their kid gets in that school, the question in that moment, am I going to not say anything, or am I going to say something? Let me encourage you. When you give the gift of celebration to that person, not only do you give a gift to them, but you give a gift to yourself. Because you don't let comparison and envy get a, get a foothold that will become a stronghold. You say, well, I don't feel like celebrating. I know. There's not one day that I get up and go, you know what, I feel like running today. It's, it's training. And doing the things that we don't feel like doing is not inauthenticity. It's called maturity. And spiritual maturity is celebrating others when they get the things that we want because Jesus said as followers that we're to love God and love our neighbor. And to love our neighbor is to desire their good, to will the good of another person. When we celebrate other people, it's one way that we take that sin of envy and comparison and say, it's not gonna win. 
following Jesus. And we fix our eyes on Jesus. Going, what's the third way? Fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. If you're going to compare, if we're going to compare with anybody, we want to compare with Jesus. <laughs> we want to compare our lives to Christ. Not so we can see how far we fall short, but so we can be reminded that Jesus ran the race perfectly. He, he is the author and the finisher. He's the only one. He lived the Christian life so well they named it after him. And he wants to run the race through you. So fix your eyes on Jesus to compare with Jesus to see. And here's the thing. When we see that we fall short, the good news is God is committed. He's bringing the resources of heaven to form Christ in us, to form the heart of Christ in us. So he is making us more like Jesus. We can't overcome comparison and envy in our own strength. There's that verse in the, in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's a great verse. Man, that's a great verse. And I've heard people use that verse to get them psyched up and, you know, for a one rep max on bench press. <laughs> I can do all things 315 through Christ who strengthens me. Like this four-minute mile. I can do all things through Christ. That's, that's not why Paul gives us that verse. In context, let me give you the context of that verse and why Paul gives it to us. He's talking about contentment. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul's saying, I've learned the secret. You want the secret? Come here. Face your eyes on Jesus. Face your eyes on Jesus. That we would fix our eyes on him. And when I look to Jesus, I find the strength to be content for what I have. I don't have to compare myself to others because who I am is not found in what I have. It's found in the one who has me. The secret is I focus on Jesus because who I am doesn't come from my status or from my possessions or what other people think of me. Who I am comes from him. And so I look to Jesus, preoccupied with Jesus, and we can't do that alone. We need some other people who have their eyes fixed on Jesus too. Say, hey, let's run together. I'll encourage you. You encourage me, we'll run together. Do you have some people like that? If not, are you a person like that? Because God wants to use you like that. So maybe the question is, God, who is somebody that's in my life who needs a word of encouragement today, as long as it's called today? Maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's a text that you send, maybe a note that you write, prayer that you pray in the conversation that you have. Who's somebody you know that's hitting a wall right now? God wants to use you in that. And God doesn't want you to run alone. What's the next step you can take to have some spiritual friends around you who can encourage you as well? And where would God want to bring freedom from the comparison and the envy that we struggle with? I'd love for us to pray about that. We just pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the freedom that comes from Jesus. And if this is something that you've struggled with, you just 
Just tell him. Holy Spirit, would you search our hearts? Would you help us see the envy or the comparison where there might be a stronghold or a foothold where it's driven a wedge into relationships? Maybe even led us to hate another person. Thank you for the freedom that the cross brings. Take that envy and put it on the cross. Just ask for your grace, Jesus, to help us live with contentment in a world of comparison. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see what we have to be grateful for? Would you give us the grace to, to list it out if it would help our hearts? God, would you give us the grace to cheer others on when they get the things that we want? That we would truly be a people who rejoice when others rejoice so that we can be a people who mourn when they mourn. And then as a church and as individuals, we fix our eyes on you. We receive, I just, I pray for strength. I pray for supernatural strength. I pray for energy <laughs> to live this kind of life. Pray that you'd fill every heart with your love, with your grace, with your acceptance, with your peace, that we would know there is a cloud of witnesses in, in heaven cheering us on. And would you give us friends here on earth that we can run with as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.